Say this with me. Say, here we go again. Here we go again. We are starting today with another journey through an entire book in the Bible. Woo! Cheer for... Can you believe it? I'm not sure people are convinced it's a good thing. It's a great thing. Um, we're going to start another exploration now. I'll tell you the book in a minute. It might be up there. It's up there. James. It's not going to take as long as Ephesians. Ephesians, remember, Ephesians is a, for a pastor, is like one of those things that Romans and Ephesians are right here where you go, do I dare take that challenge on? Because it's huge. And you can't go three words in Ephesians without having, needing needing an entire sermon to talk about what it means. And then you go three more words and you're like, I can't do six words because it takes a whole half hour to talk about this concept. But James is different. James is more like, like it's, the first chapter is little kind of tidbits, four or five verses, three, four verses, doom, doom, doom. But after that, it's almost whole chapters or half a chapters on one idea. And so we'll move through James a lot faster. Not that our goal is move through it faster, but move through it faster than we did through Ephesians. But before we actually start, and we are going to actually start in James this morning, but I want to do a little intro first. Let me remind you, because this is really important, remind you, why we take the time to do entire books of the Bible. Why not just preach some thematic sermons each week, you know, two weeks on this, three weeks on how to be happy, four weeks on, you know, the joy of the Lord, whatever you want to look at, um, which we do at times. Matter of fact, um, coming up in December, just a little ways away, two months away, um, we are going to spend five weeks, four or five weeks, talking about a connected Christmas we already have our entire Christmas series outlined, who's preaching what, and a connected Christmas. We're going to talk about that. You have to figure out what that means as we, as we get closer. We'll let you know. Um, but most of the time, what we do at Portview, what I've always done for almost 30 years now, is I cover books of the Bible or large portions of books of the Bible. And the question to answer to you is why? There's a few reasons why that are really important that you might not have thought of that, that are the reasons that keep bringing me back to doing this. First reason is this. Because of the extremely high value that we place on the Word of God. And let me explain what I mean. If you say, well, somebody else does and they do thematic. I'm not knocking anybody else. I'm just explaining why we do what we do. Um, what we, our goal is, in, in our interaction as a church, in this time, in the sermon time, is that we want to let the Bible speak to us. That's what we're trying to do. We read it, and we do our best to understand what it says and then build our lives around what the Bible says. Often, when a person does a series or a theme-based preaching, um, we, we run the risk of simply coming up with an idea. Oh, I want to talk about this. And then we try to find scripture that supports what we say. Now there's actually theological words for that. The theological word for what we do, take the Bible, let it speak, and we simply try to figure out what it says, the word called exegesis. Ever hear the word exegesis? It has nothing to do with Jesus. It doesn't mean that. But exe, the word is exegesis. And that's what it means. You exegete a scripture. You let the scripture speak to you. There's a word for the other type. It's called eisegesis. And again, nothing to do with Jesus himself, but eisegesis. Eisegesis means you have an idea already, and you try to make the scripture say what you want it to say. One is theologically correct. 
One is theologically incorrect. I would venture to say this. A huge portion, 75-80% of preaching I hear today in America is eisegesis. They already know what they want to say. And then they simply try to find scriptures to support what they want to say. I don't want to, I don't want to, be, I don't want to succumb to that. So we take whole books and we read it and we simply say, what does this say to us? Preaching through books helps us keep from doing improper, it can help do, keep us from doing improper forcing of our own ideas on to Scripture. So that's one reason that we do entire books. Another reason we do whole books is because it forces us to cover topics that we would rather skip. Can you believe this, that a lot of times I'm going through and I go, I come to the next thing and I say, really, Lord? I have to deal with that? We did it a few weeks ago. Not usually because you don't want, sometimes you don't want the topic, sometimes it's a controversial topic. A few weeks ago we were going through Ephesians, one of the very last things, and it, and it made us deal with the idea of, of um, praying in the Spirit. We had to deal with, what's this mean in a, in a, in a heated countryside, you know, community that, that mainly Lutherans and Catholics, which I was one, um, and we hear this stuff from them crazy Pentecostals, and we have to try to explain this in a way that's scaring people out the door. Why did we have to deal with it? Why did we deal with spiritual language and prayer and all that a couple weeks ago? Because we're going through the book and we got there. Um, so it forces you to deal with topics that you would rather sometimes not deal with. There's a lot of difficult things in Scripture, and what happens a lot of times, we can just pick and choose what we like, and what we generally like is we all have a tendency to pick things that are positive and avoid things that are hard or negative. I had a friend that had an example with this that discovered this, and he's a pastor of a very large church, and maybe I've told you this story before, but it fits here. Very large church, a very trendy church, um, huge progressive um, he's kind of a superstar guy, and he wanted to preach through a book of the Bible, but his trendy staff and trendy pastor wanted to do it, and the staff was saying, Pastor, you can't do that. He's like, why? He goes, it, 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 he said this, it's not trendy enough. You can't do that. We've got to do this, all this creative stuff, and you know, not that you can't be creative, but it's not trendy enough to do that. Just going verse by verse is old-fashioned, and people won't like it, and... And he said, well, after a couple years of fighting with his staff, he said, I'm the boss. I don't care what you say. I'm going to do what I want to do. And he preached the entire Gospel of Luke. And this is what he said to me. I was on the phone in this building, and he said it to me. He said, Mark, I came to a problem. I said, what was the problem? He goes, Luke talks about hell. Now, to me, you and me, we go, yeah, big deal. It was a big deal. Their trendy positive church has a, has a core belief. They never talk about anything negative. Only positive. It's all positive. Your best life ever. You know, all positive. And he goes, we came to hell, and what am I going to do? And his staff is fighting with him. You can't deal with hell in church. I'm going, you can't deal with hell in church? They couldn't deal with hell in church. So I said to him, what did you do? He goes, I preached about hell for two Sundays. And I said, what happened? He said, Mark, because they have multiple weekend services, he said, the first weekend, 186 of the people from our congregation asked Christ into their life. Who had been, who had been in church for years, many of them. But had never said, I really, because it's just like, well, this is a fun place to go. But he never dealt with anything hard that made them evaluate, is this serious? Preaching through books of the Bible cause you to have to deal with things. Think of that friend of mine 
think of the opportunity for those 186 people, and who knows how many other ones, that, that would, they would have missed by just being positive. They, they, so preacher threw a book, he had, to call, he had to deal with something that was hard for him to deal with because people say, well, you know, that's, that's negative. On God, a loving God would really have a place like that? Well, guess what? I don't get to make that decision. He made it. I just have to read it and figure out what he's saying. And so he just let the Bible speak instead of them saying, here's our message and we're going to communicate our message. They let God give his message and his message changes lives. So that's the second reason why. And there's one last reason that I like to preach through whole books of the Bible. And it's simply is that I'm trying to explain what I mean because you know how you got something in your head, you want to explain it, but I'm not sure I can explain what I'm thinking. And this is what I want to say because I'm not anti-creativity. But this is what I want to say. I preach through books because I think God is creative enough. Go like this with me. Like to move your fingers like this. Look at your hand. What kind of creativity did it make to, to create that? You think God maybe is creative and knows what he's doing? I think God is creative and he knows what he's doing. But there's such a push in the Americanized Western church today to make everything more spectacular and more creative all the time. The problem with that, of trying to out, be out-creative creative God, is a lot of times you get the nonsense. And here's the, the other side of it. A lot of times life is just life. And it's not all spectacular all the time. And most days what we need is just to be reminded of the solid truth that we can build our lives upon. And I think that the Holy Spirit is really creative and he's done a really good creative job of revealing that in a really way that he wants done. It's called the Bible and books of the Bible. So I'm comfortable just trying to unpack and understand what he has created for us called the scriptures. I'm comfortable with that, of just doing that. So that's why whole books of the Bible. In case you, instead of some of you who clapped and said, oh, another book, some of you moaned secretly, quietly inside, you moaned. But here's the good thing. You always know where we're starting at. Your Bible now will open to the book of James automatically in a few weeks like it did to Ephesians for off and on for three years. But remember, here's my disclaimer when we do this, because there's a joke about this from Job a couple weeks ago from Pastor Mitch. It was only about 50 messages out of three years. That's only one-third of the messages of the whole three years. And so so that's why books of the Bible. But then let's, let's move to the next step then. Why, be, when, we, why when we begin another book then, we know why we're doing a book, why the book of James? Why would I have chosen, of all the books, 66 books, why would I have chosen the book of James? Well, I think because it's very important for where we are at as a church and where we are at as a culture. Now, I'm not trying to say the church and the culture are the same, but there's uniqueness about our culture. We'll talk about that. There's uniqueness about where we're at in a journey as our church right now. And I think James is the right book to speak to us. As I, I spent a lot of time, months, I knew, I knew Ephesians coming to end, so months and months and months I've been asking the Lord, what do you want next? And here's why. As a church, we've spent a lot of time in the last number of years um, learning about and developing how we can be people of being. What I mean by that is through soul care, through transformation. Uh, We spend a lot of energy on who we are on the inside. And that's important because who we are, who are people of Portview? We are people who care. Um, that is about our heart, right? 
That's about our heart. That's about our being. From being caring people will then flow ministry. And that's wonderful. We should put our efforts into spiritual growth and development. We're never going to stop that. You know, we want to feel like Jesus on the inside, not fake like Jesus on the outside. We want internal transformation. That's what it's all about. However, there is a human tendency to polarize. I'm not talking about your glasses. Maybe that might have something to do with it. But to polarize. What I mean by that is move from one extreme to one extreme at the expense of the other extreme. And in our case, we could, if we're not careful, polarize to a place of focusing so much energy on personal growth that we ignore applying the growth to our, to our involvement with the world around us. We could do that. We could become what an old saying used to say. So here's this in church um, from the pastor I sat in there for years. And I think he was wrong how he applied it, but I could apply it here. We could be so spiritually minded that we're no earthly good. Have you heard that phrase before? We could be so spiritually minded that we're no earthly good, meaning spiritual in the sense of so looking at our own life exclusively and our own personal growth that we'd be no good to the world around us. So James can help us with this. You know, we're going to be doing James, and the title of our series is James, Faith That Works. Meaning, number two, two applications. Number one, it works. It really does work in the world. It works for you. But also faith that puts our faith into practice. It does something. It works itself out. So, see, James is a very practical book written to Christian people, which is many of us, about applying real-life Christian virtue in real-life situations. It's kind of like the New Testament version of the Old Testament book of Proverbs. A lot of people will compare them. It's kind of like that. Wise teachings about how to live a Christian life well. How to move from being to doing and how to balance those out. Being right with God's spiritual formation, but then doing something because of the transformation within me. In fact, James is famous for telling us this phrase that you probably all think of when we say James. Faith without works is dead. You've all probably heard that before. In other words, real faith will express itself in real activity, uh, in real doing, and and from from the opposite view, calling oneself a Christian without any evidence, without any display of Christianity, brings into question the reality of one's real spiritual life and walk. So James brings balance. He keeps us from polarizing on self-development alone without practical expressions of that development flowing through our lives. Now I think James is also not only relevant for ourselves personally, but it's relevant to us as as Christians living in our current culture because believe it or not, there's a lot of similarities between James' culture, what he experienced, and what we're experiencing in our culture right now. See, James wrote from Jerusalem in about A.D. 47 to 49. That's when he wrote. Now you say there's nothing at all similar between James's world and our world. I would, I would beg to differ with you. He wrote from a city that was in religious turmoil, where Christians were facing opposition from civil and religious leaders. He wrote from a city in political turmoil, where people were under foreign rule and Christians were politically powerless and becoming more powerless. He wrote from a city with an unstable economy where Christians were, in that situation, the poorest of the poor. So I see James as having a lot to say about our world today, 
a world that is filled with religious turmoil. It's exactly what we heard in the video today. A lady saying ISIS came in was gonna, and killed people in my village and would have killed my family. That's religious turmoil. A world filled with religious turmoil. A world surely filled with political turmoil. If you don't believe me, go in the grocery store and just say, not positive or negative, say, Donald Trump! And see what happens to you. Okay? You live in a world of political turmoil, and we live in a world of economic turmoil. You say, but we're in a really good spot right now. Don't forget 2008 and 2009. Because the 2008 and 2009s are just around the corner again. It always is just around the corner again. You go through seasons of abundance, and we go through seasons of lack. And so we live in a world that's similar. This is why the book of James is for us at this time. It will keep us in balance, and it speaks directly to issues that are important for Christian living in such a time as this. Does that make sense? So, you say, are you done? No, that was the introduction. But I'm not going to keep you here forever. We're going to do a short little section, the first little section of James. So grab your Bible. If you're not open to James yet, open your Bible. And what you're going to get today, I'm telling you, is right from the heart of God because it's God's word, but number, number two, it's right from the heart of God, because it is the theme of what's been going on in this place this morning that was unplanned. Okay? And so, James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. You there? It says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results, so you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We'll stop right there. Now, before we get into James' first teaching, which is verses 2, 3, and 4, let's take a moment and look at verse 1, because it's called the salutation. The salutation identifies the author and the audience. Who wrote it, who he wrote it to, and this is important here. This letter is written by somebody who knows what he's talking about when it comes to Christianity. It's written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. Mary was James's mother. Okay, it's a pretty good pedigree. Mary was James's mother, and Joseph was probably James's father. We don't exactly know their whole family, but that was probably Joseph was his father, while Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, so he doesn't have a biological father, an earthly biological father. So, in that sense, James and Jesus are half-brothers. And as we're going to see through our study, James, what we find out about him here in other places in Scripture and through church history, is he was an incredibly devout follower of Jesus, a wise leader of the church in the chaotic city of Jerusalem. He was the one that God appointed to be leader of the church in Jerusalem. James is the one who early on when the church was expanding and trying to reach Gentiles didn't want to do that. James presided over the meeting um, that said, what do we do with Gentiles? Um, in Acts 15 it writes about it. He's the leader who is the thinker and the head and the strong leader of the fledgling church that stayed in Jerusalem and then it scattered around. And as James wrote this letter, he writes this particular letter, it says, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. So he writes this letter to Jewish Christians. They were people, they're, the, they're the, the 12 tribes of Israel. The Jewish Christians living outside of Jerusalem. Christians were, and there were facing some of the most 
horrible persecution in Jerusalem and outside Jerusalem, but they were fleeing Jerusalem because of persecution. And he wrote to those people who had dispersed, and he probably was also writing to those who had been at Pentecost, who are from all the different countries, had come to Pentecost for the harvest celebration, the Pentecost celebration, had, had, had an encounter with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, had come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord, and then it went back to their cities. They're dispersed abroad. They're Christians, Jewish descent, who are living all over in places outside of Jerusalem. And to these scattered, and, and let me add, greatly persecuted Jewish Christians, James writes a letter. Now, ask yourself this question. Knowing the people you're writing to, they're, they're impoverished, they're, they're, they're overlooked, they're pushed down, they're oppressed. One of the things James is writing about, about they're abused by, by rich bosses that are, taking, that, are, that are not paying them for their wages. They're being abused. Of all the things you could write to those people, what would you imagine the first thing James would write to such people in such a difficult situation would be? Maybe, hey, you're a Christian now. You can live your best life ever. God's going to make you rich and successful. That's God's plan. Follow his principles and everything will work out great. You'll have no problems. You'll be rich and well-fed and in need of nothing. Think he'd say that? We might say that. One of the reasons we go through books of the Bible causes us to look at reality. What would God say in a situation like that? No, James pretty much says exactly the opposite. Look at verse 2. He says something that could, if you didn't understand what he's saying, be complete nonsense. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. What's going on here? We're going to explain what he means. What's going on as he's writing is we're just getting a glimpse into James, the man. James reveals who he is. He's just incredibly practical, logical, and loving pastor who won't lie to people he loves and won't misrepresent the reality of living for Christ for personal gain. In love, he gives them and us something so much better than an empty promise that says that if you have Christ in your life, that everything will be wonderful. In love, he explains that, yes, you will face problems. In fact, this. Because you are in Christ, your problems will probably increase because you're going to face persecution and mistreatment. That's what he's going to talk about in this book. But in Christ, you have something greater than anyone else could ever have who does not know Jesus and Savior as Savior and Lord. What he says is, listen, you can actually experience joy in the most difficult times of life. That Christian joy can fill your life even in the most difficult of all circumstances. And they were living it in a tough spot. That joy in Christ is not tied to circumstances. It's not like happiness what's tied to circumstances. But it is a result of the Holy Spirit within the child of God. And as we walk through darkness, friends, with our eyes turned upward towards God... Not looking for answers. Here's one of our problems. Not saying why, but looking for Him. Looking to experience God that in that connection in times of difficulty, we can experience joy. Now some people would say that's impossible, but James knew better. He knew his own life and he knew the life of other people in Scripture. He knew better. It's not impossible. 
to consider joy a joy when you encounter various trials because Scripture doesn't just speak of it here. It speaks of it all through the pages of Scripture. Let me give you a few examples. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul said this, In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. He didn't say, In all my vacations in Door County, looking at the beauty of God's creation, my joy knew no bounds. He says, In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. In Acts chapter 5, says that the Sanhedrin called the apostles in and had them flogged. That's beaten with sticks. Okay? Beaten with sticks. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore, and they let him go. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin complaining and moping. No. Rejoicing. Because they had been counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas. They've been preaching and they've been lied about and they've been falsely imprisoned and they're severely, again, flogged, beaten with sticks. And it says this, Having been severely flogged and being in intense pain, they were in prison and about midnight, Paul and Silas were complaining to each other about how hard life was in Jesus. No. It says they were praying And they were singing hymns to God, and all the other prisoners were listening to them. It's about joy. Friends, joy is uniquely Christian. Augustine of Hippo, a person living in the 4th century, a Christian man living in the 4th century, one of the church fathers, um, understood this. And he was very honest, and I appreciate his honesty, because he looks at the world through honest eyes, and this is what he says. He says, if you take an honest look at the world around you, he says, there is no connection between what happens in people's lives, whether they are good or bad people. Hear me out. He says, good things happen to to bad people, and bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad people. He said, it's just true. Think of it this way. Good Christian people who are tithers and their ministers and their servants have had their homes destroyed by hurricanes in the last couple of weeks, and some really horrible, rotten, evil people living in the same places have been spared. Augustine of Hippo looks at it and he says, there's no connection. But this is what he says. He says, however, he says, quote, we must seek out the good things peculiar to the good, good people, and give the widest birth to evil things particular to evil men. He says this, the good things peculiar to the good. This is what he's talking about. What's particular or peculiar to the good, to those who are serving God, is that they can have something that no one else can have, that in the midst of trials, they can have joy. That's what James is referring to. John said it like this in chapter 16. Yes, in this world you will have troubles. Rejoice. Rejoice. Not complain because Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus will carry you through the darkest night. Jesus will fill our soul with joy because He is joy. He fills us our soul because He is joy. So James can say to the misused and the abused, you can have joy in your time of struggle. But he doesn't just stop there. 
He goes on to, this is practical James. He says, so you can listen to James and go, baloney, I don't believe you, it's not true. You know how many times I say things that people, they don't say it out loud, but I see it in their eyes, they're going, baloney, I don't believe you, it's not true. I know better, so they're saying. You ever see one of my favorite Christmas movies? Well, I shouldn't give this tangent. <laughs> a Christmas story where he gets a BB gun and Flick sticks his tongue to the flagpole and the kids come in and they're trying to say who is the one who put them up that they don't say it, no one tells. And the, the teacher's shaming them. And in his mind he goes, parents always, adults always say this thing, but kids know better. Kids know better. It's always better not to get caught. And that's what, that's what he's thinking. That's what people think a lot of times. I know better. I know better. This is what scripture says, but I know better. But James doesn't stop there and just saying, okay, believe me, don't believe me. He goes on to explain how trials can benefit us, how they can bring joy into our lives. So he says, this is the truth. And then he says, and here's how it can happen. Look at verses three, verses 3 and 4 show this. How trials can lead to joy because we know that they can produce strong spiritual results. Look at verses 3 and 4. Knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James explains this as a two-step process. How you can get joy because of problems. He says, number one, we're going to explain these trials produce endurance. Number two, endurance results in maturity. That's what he's talking about here. That you can be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. That's talking about becoming spiritually mature. Um, I want to explain this, how we're going to look at these two things, by looking at two illustrations that God has given us, I believe, if for nothing else, to, to validate what the apostle, what James is writing about here. Butterflies and oysters. Everybody see a butterfly? You know, think of a monarch. Hasn't it been nice to see more monarchs lately? They're coming back. And oysters. Let me explain these points by those two illustrations. First, butterflies. Have you ever observed a caterpillar? And this just happened. Some of the kids in church had this. They had a little box. A caterpillar that attaches itself to a branch, and then it encloses itself in what's called a chrysalis or a cocoon, and then, as it lays there, it's in there and it begins to develop, in time, then all of a sudden struggle happens, and in a little while, the chrysalis starts to break down, and what comes out of the chrysalis? A butterfly, or a moth, a butterfly. What would happen if you cut the butterfly out of the chrysalis to spare it from the struggle of the fight of its way out of the chrysalis? And people have done it many times, you maybe did it in science class, to see what was the result. What would happen... If you spared the butterfly the struggle of getting out of the chrysalis, do you know what happened? You basically kill it. You know why you kill it? Because the struggle of freeing itself from the chrysalis builds its strength, which that, that enables it to be able to come out of the chrysalis and fly like it was meant to fly. Cut it out of the chrysalis with a knife or scissors, and the butterfly will never fly. The butterfly can't fly. It's going to die. Rescue it from its struggle and it dies. The struggle produced endurance. Endurance is that toughness to keep on going. Struggle produces endurance. The butterfly became strong because it struggled and it overcame. Remove the struggle and the butterfly can never fly. The butterfly can't fly. The butterfly is going to die. The same is true for us. Struggle produces endurance. The testing of our faith produces endurance. We get spiritually stronger as we walk through trials with our eyes turned towards Jesus. Our trials make us tougher. 
Eliminate the trials and we're weak. Eliminate the trials and you can't walk through anything. Spiritual trials make you stronger. That's what James, James is saying. And then he says the next step. So he's saying, okay, trials make you stronger. Part one of joy. Number two, endurance, the strength, produces maturity or spiritual maturity. Maturity here meaning completeness and wholeness, spiritual wholeness. So let's think about an oyster. Some of you are ahead of me already. We don't like irritation in life, right? Generally, we want to avoid irritation. Like your dog who is sick right now with a cone on his head that's been sleeping between us for two nights on our bed because he can't scratch himself. So I have to reach my hand into the cone every 30 minutes all night long and scratch him so that he'll stop scratching at his cone. It's an irritation. We haven't had much sleep the last couple nights. We don't like irritation. We avoid it generally. But an oyster is different. When a bit of sand gets under what's called the mantle of the shell of an oyster, instead of being crabby, like the crab next to it, it's an oyster, it covers it with its most precious part of its being. The irritation that was causing it was causing it problems stops to be irritating as it begins to encapsulate the grain of sand with this pearly formation that it can create as an oyster. And a true pearl is what happens when an irritant comes into the oyster and it begins to encapsulate it in this pearly substance to stop the irritation. So the true pearl is really just a victory over irritation. It's not avoidance of an irritation or removal from the situation that caused the irritation. We like those answers. Remove the problem, avoid the problem. The oyster says, no, make the problem, make yourself better because of the problem. Make something beautiful out of the problem. In our lives, if we'll embrace the irritations of our lives and surround them with our most valuable thing, which is our love, the pearl of maturity results. This is why, and let's wrap it up, this is why James can say to consider it joy when we encounter trials. Because he knows the intended result of the trials. The trial produces endurance. It makes us strong. And the endurance leads to maturity, to wholeness that results from the grace of God at work in us as we love and extend grace, especially in tough times. James says we can look past the trials and see the result, Christ-likeness, and that should fill our hearts with joy. So maybe we're not facing a trial today, but maybe you are, and if you aren't, someday you will. And the enemy wants us to, wants us to, to use the trials in our lives to move away from grace, to move away from, from trusting God and that God is good. But James is a word for all of us during trials. Joy can be your companion during tough times, if we'll look past the problem and see God's intended outcome. Struggles produce endurance. Endurance lead to maturity. So we can grow and we can get better as we walk through the valleys of life. And knowing that on this side of the trial or in the middle of the trial is the thing that allows us to look into the eyes of God and say, God, joy is in you. And I look to you. Fill me with your presence, which is where joy comes from. And I'm looking forward, God, to what you're going to produce in my life on the other side 
of this trial. Friends, that's what, that's what James is talking about today. So consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Now you say, I'm not spiritually there yet. You know what? I'm not sure I am yet either. But I'm getting closer. Because we can see the end. And the end is good. The end is God doing a great work if we will participate with God like the oyster in it and not run from it like the butterfly. We will be better. Amen? Stand with me this morning. I'm going to close in prayer this morning. I'm simply going to ask God to help us see past our problems and look into His eyes and find His joy today. So Father, thank You that You have led James, the half-brother of Jesus, to write practical help for us in our real-world Christianity. And that, Lord, a challenging word today that says that we can look past our trials, we can see the end, and because we can see the well-intended value at the end, the development in Christ-likeness, becoming mature and more like Jesus, that in the midst from now to then, we can look to you and we can actually experience joy because you are joy. And Father, I would pray for everyone in this room today as we've been just touched by your presence in wonderful ways. That God, no matter what trial we're in or what trial we may face in the future, would you give us the strength of a butterfly to not avoid or escape, but to wiggle through it with you at our side and in our heart? Would you give us the, the, the ability of the oyster to encapsulate the problem in love and not, not use it as an irritation to make us rotten and make us mean, but to cover it in love? So that, Lord, maturity flows from our lives. So, Lord, I would ask this for every person in this place. God, as we walk through trials, remind us of these wise words from James. Help us to walk in your strength and in your wisdom and in your power in our daily lives today and this week and next week and the week after, one foot in front of the other in real-world Christianity. And let your joy bubble through us so that this is the most joy-filled place the world has ever seen. We trust you for it, Lord, because we know that's your will. In Jesus' name.